is a blessing to be here week in and week out with you guys to see your awesome, gorgeous faces smiling back at me each week. You know, there was a time, it's funny, I'm going to take a moment to reflect a little bit. There was a time when this thing called COVID happened, y'all remember? And I can remember standing in this room with absolutely nobody in here and a camera set up in the back and me and Luke, our media guy, were in here recording messages to put out on social media to send out to you guys. And it was such a weird time because I remember us standing in here thinking it was me, him, and Brother Matt, our student pastor, one week, wondering if you guys would ever come back, if there were ever going to be a time where we would gather together as groups again, or if that time was completely done. Nobody knew. You know how it was weird, right? Like, it was a really weird season of life if you go back and think about it. Like, we had no idea what was going to happen. We had no idea if you guys were ever going to come back to UNA's campus or not. We didn't know if they were going to say, you know what, from now until eternity, we're going to be remote learning, so nobody's going to be on campus. Like, it was a weird time of life, and I remember, like, standing here just kind of wigging out, like, I'm not going to have a job. Like, the church is going to fire me because I go, well, why don't we need a college pastor? There's no college students here, so, you know, see ya, man. It's a good run, but, like, good luck with life. So I was, like, wigging out about it a little bit. And so it is a tremendous blessing that week in and week out, God has entrusted me and my wife, Ashley, to do the best that we possibly can to lead you guys and grow you spiritually and deepen your faith and introduce you to the most magnificent Savior that this world has ever and will ever know and we're not perfect and we fall short and we make mistakes just like anybody else in this room but we do love you guys dearly and it is an honor to be able to get to do what we do but the real honor lies with me tonight being able to give you a message from God's word so one last time we're going to go back to Eden and we're going to go back to Gethsemane so if you got your copy of God's word with you we're going to find ourselves parked in Genesis chapter 3 and in Mark chapter 14, back and forth a little bit. So if you want to go ahead and get those places marked, we're going to work back and forth between these two gardens, separated by 4,000 years, but tied together in God's story of man's redemption. And if you've been here with us for the entire tale, we've watched as God spoke creation into existence, as he breathed the breath of life into man, placing him in the garden. We've seen the paradise that Eden was full of life, full of beauty, minerally rich, just all you could ever want or need. Like the place, if you had an ideal place to build your dream home one day, like Eden was that place. And that's where God had placed Adam and Eve to live. It was a place where man lived and walked in perfect fellowship and harmony with God, unobstructed by sin, uncorrupted by sin, undepraved by sin. It was a place of perfection by all accounts. And then we watched as deception crept in through Satan. So he appeared to Eve in the form of the serpent and deceived her into eating from the tree that God told them, you can enjoy everything about this place except that one area. Don't mess with that. Eve was deceived Adam was deceived, man fell into sin, and from that point onward, everything changed for the worse. And then we took a look at Gethsemane, completely different picture from Eden. Jesus isn't having a good time in this garden. As a matter of fact, he's in deep anguish, so much so 
that as he's praying to his father about the upcoming events that are fixing to transpire in his life, he begins to sweat drops of blood over the stress and anxiousness that he is under, knowing what he is about to go through. No longer do we see man walking in fellowship, walking in harmony with God. We see man showing up in the form of a mob to seize and arrest God. Things have changed drastically by the time we leave Eden and get to Gethsemane, and they only get worse from there because we know that they're dragging him from this garden to a cross and then ultimately to a tomb after his death. And so this no longer looks like the good creation that God had once spoken to existence in Eden. Everything's on top of its head. It's completely backwards. It seems to be completely counter from the way in which God had planned things to work out. And if you were here with us last week, that's kind of what we saw together as sin entered into the garden through Adam and Eve. They then became aware and thus ashamed of their nakedness. They're hiding from God's presence. Judgment and consequences have been announced as a result of what they have done. All this stuff that was once good is not good anymore. And so we're going to pick back up on that story in Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to start in verse 20. God's word says, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree in life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, or an angel, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. I want to talk to you tonight from the topic of unfinished to it is finished. God's holiness, hear me say this, God's holiness is not to be trifled with. There is no tolerance of sin for him. And I think it's important that we understand that because don't misconstrue grace, mercy, and forgiveness for tolerance. God has no tolerance for sin. It's ultimately why Jesus ends up hanging on the cross, suffering the most brutal death that history has ever seen, because God has no tolerance for sin. There is judgment, there is wrath, there is consequence, and fortunately for you and for me and each and every person that would walk the face of this earth, Jesus absorbed that at the cross, but there's no tolerance for sin when it comes to a holy, righteous, and just God. But even still... His grace and His love towards His creation is quickly displayed. So even in the midst of His judgment and His removal of man from the garden, which we just saw as part of the consequence, Adam and Eve are no longer going to be allowed to continue to live inside the paradise that God had made for them. They're going to be expelled from the garden. And so even though there's consequence, even though there is judgment, even though man has been kicked out of the paradise that God had placed him in, God's grace and love towards his creation is still quickly on display. And we're going to see that a little more depth here in just a moment, but let's jump over to the Gethsemane for a second in Mark chapter 14 because I want to refresh this image in your mind as well. Jesus is in the garden in Gethsemane, and it's a much different scene. In Mark chapter 14, 
We're going to pick up in verse 32 just so you can see the whole context once more of what's taking place there. It says, They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to greatly be distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away, and he prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came to them a third time. He said to them, are you still sleeping, taking your rest? Is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came with one of the twelve. And with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him, and they fled. And let's get down to verse 33 where it says, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together as they're preparing to make false witness and testimony against Christ that's ultimately going to lead to his crucifixion. So now that you've got that scene refreshed in your mind, let's go back to Eden again. We're about to get a little wild with this. Tell somebody next to you, don't miss this. Don't miss this. The best part of the entire story is going to come together, culminating in a wild conclusion tonight. Even though man has done something reprehensible, God is going to do something remarkable. Adam and Eve's choice has not thrown God into a panic as if he doesn't know what to do with the decisions that they have made. There has, as a matter of fact, never been a moment where God has lost control of his creation. Even though things may seem wild and crazy and out of control, it is a controlled chaos. God has never once slipped in his sovereignty. And so, yes, what we see take place in Eden is undesirable, but it's not unrepairable. The choices, the decisions, the mistakes of your life may be undesirable, but you are not unrepairable. The grace of God can cover any multitude of issues that you might have brought with you into this place tonight. But let's look at Eden one last time a little more in depth. One thing I want you to notice about Eden is that after sin had entered into the garden, God provides a sacrifice. Remember after Adam and Eve had sinned, what did they do? They took fig leaves and they sewed them together in an attempt to cover the shamefulness of what they perceived as their own nakedness. But God shows them and us 
that this is an insufficient covering for the choice that they had made. So if you go back and look at verse 21, it says that the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he closed them. Now, they were already closed is the thing. They had already made their own garments. They had already woven together their own covering that they thought was sufficient to overcome the shame of what they felt in spite of what they had done. But God shows up, and he looks at the coverings that Adam and Eve have placed upon themselves, and then he decides to take an animal and kill it so that they can be clothed with its skin instead. Now, don't overlook the importance of what God just did because it shows us that Adam and Eve sewing together the fig leaves was an insufficient covering for the mistakes that they had made. Sin cannot be covered, by the way, by our own feeble efforts, in other words. There is no amount of worth or work that you can do. There's no amount of cleansing that you can do of your own soul to remove the serious stain that sin leaves. It cannot be washed off by our own efforts. It cannot be taken underneath our own control and removed or changed or renewed or restored. Yes, we mess things up, but we are incapable of making things right. And so when God shows up in the garden, he takes this animal and he sacrifices it and he brings the skin of it to Adam and Eve as an adequate covering for what they had done for the time being. Sin cannot be covered by our own feeble efforts. And forgiveness, by the way, is a much more costly purchase price than just sewing a few leaves together. That's not going to suffice. So God takes an animal and he sacrifices it to clothe Adam and Eve. And for the first time, there's death in the world. And through this, God foreshadows that only blood is sufficient to make atonement for sin. You know what's interesting about this to me really is the fact that God is the one who performed the first sacrifice. It wasn't Adam, it wasn't Eve, it was God himself who performs the first sacrifice. In other words, it's God getting his hands bloody when the blood really should be on the hands of man. <laughs> and so in a quite amazing way, what this shows us is that it's God who initiates forgiveness. It's God who initiates pardon for man's actions. It wasn't Adam, it wasn't Eve, it was God himself who came down into the garden, who took the animal, who sacrificed it, who spilled its blood, who took its skin to cover Adam and Eve. God initiates forgiveness. God initiates a pardon for man's sinful actions. It shows us that even still, in this moment, God still cares, he still loves, and he still provides for his creation. Already he is showing that he will refuse to leave man stuck in his sin with no hope. And then we get a glimpse of a conversation in verse 22 that takes place amongst the Trinity. If you notice, he uses a plural form of himself. Man has become like one of us. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit in existence. All together, all one, for all eternity. Beginning, future, past, present. He's always been. And so there's this conversation that's taking place amongst the Trinity where God vocalizes a thought and I want you to see something in the midst of this. He vocalizes a thought that he, he can't even finish. 
So if you go back and look at verse 22, it says, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And if your copy of God's words looks similar to mine, there's a long dash right there where God cuts his sentence off. He doesn't even finish the statement that he's trying to get out. So God begins this sentence, then he stops before finishing it because the realization is if man now goes and eats from the tree of life, he will live forever in his sinful condition. And so the statement is left unfinished, unfinished, because this thought, this plan has to get moving in order to prevent man from doing something worse on top of something bad that he's already done. So God can waste no time whatsoever in putting into motion his plan of salvation. The thought is unbearable to him, and it's one that requires his immediate action to prevent, and so he takes a couple of measures. So God, let me, in case you didn't catch it, God looks down and he considers what man has done. He ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which he told man not to do. Now he realizes that if man, on top of that mistake, walks over and grabs from the tree of life and eats from it, he will live forever in his sinful condition that he has already spoiled his soul with. Now, I don't know exactly how these two trees work. I'll admit that. Somehow, though, some way, if Adam and Eve were to eat from the tree of life, the Bible gives us just enough information to show us that it would have confirmed their moral condition in the fallen nature that they were in. So God shows us that somehow, some way, the way in which these trees work, and I don't get it, I don't pretend to get it, I don't understand everything inside of this book, and if you ever get there where you do understand everything in this book, come see me, because that's phenomenal. There are some mysteries in here that God, I think, leaves unrevealed. But it shows us that if man were to, to take a bad thing and make it worse, they would have been unredeemable. It's unfixable at that point. So the thought of this is unbearable to God. He says, i got to take action. I ain't got time to finish this conversation with myself, which is weird in and of itself. I've got to move. I've got to keep them from making a bad thing even worse. So God takes two measures. One is that he, he guards the tree. God guards the tree. So he's already provided a sacrifice, and now he's going to guard the tree. Why? To keep man from making a bad thing even worse. So God places a cherubim angel with a flaming sword in front of the tree because he's going to mess with that, right? Like, imagine you're in the garden, first and foremost, just a wild experience as it is, and you're walking with the physical presence of God, and then you get kicked out for your consequences, and you turn around and you look at the one tree that, that you actually had access to. God said don't ever eat. God never said don't eat from the tree of life, by the way. He only told them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So before that, the tree of life, as far as I can tell, was free access. Have at it. But now, as they turn around and look at that tree, there's this wild-looking angel. It's not like, you know, I think a lot of us, when we think of angels, we think like some kind of precious moments, little thing. It's like a cute bubbly face and little tiny wings and a little halo above its head. And it's like all cute and precious. This thing would have been like terrifying. That is not the angels that you find in Scripture, by the way. Angels in Scripture got like 15 wings and are covered in eyeballs and they got lion faces and eagle claws for feet. Like it's weird, wild stuff. Like this thing would have been terrifying. And on top of that, God gives us this flaming sword that like turns from all sides. You got like this weird like 
mythic creature standing in front of the tree that's just like waving this flaming sword back and forth. Like, this is wild stuff. Like, I'm not going next to that tree. Like, no way I'm getting close to that thing. A man is kicked out of the garden, and he's guarded from getting back to the tree. So at this point, eating from this tree would not grant life. It would seal death. Man would surely die, and God told him that from the get-go. He said, if you go and you eat from this tree, the day that you do, you will surely die. Man would surely die, and they would apparently do so without hope of redemption. Forever separated from God, if they can get to this tree. Remember that God has indeed pronounced consequences for what they had done. Eve faces in childbirth increased pain, wrong desires that go against her husband. Adam faces difficulty and frustration and work when it comes to the ground. Man is cursed temporarily, but to eat of this tree would lead him into being condemned eternally. So God guards it. And then as a second measure of protection, man gets expelled from the garden. God expels Adam and Eve from the garden. Paradise is now lost. God's physical manifest presence on the earth also becomes a lot more infrequent now. All throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we see moments where God comes down onto the earth, but it's never in like his physical, actual form. It's always in a varying form. Moses probably came the closest of anybody of seeing God's physical presence when he hit him in the rock, and he passed by, and Moses got to see the train of his robe as he went by. But after this, the relationship is obviously different. Man no longer walking with God in garden places Instead, God's presence, when it shows up, is in the form often of, of fire and smoke, thunder, light. You get like this ominous type, awe-inspiring, fear-filling type presence of God when he shows up on the earth. So things are just obviously different at this point. Adam and Eve will now feel the sting and the pain of a world filling ever more with each passing day with the corrupt effects of sin that is entered in. But hope is not lost. As a matter of fact, in chapter 3, if you backed up five verses in verse 15, God, as he speaks to the serpent, says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God prophetically announces that an offspring born of woman will come and crush the head of Satan who deceived man. And 4,000 years later, that offspring is standing in Gethsemane. So let's go back to Gethsemane. In Eden, God himself provides a sacrifice. But in Gethsemane, Christ himself becomes the sacrifice. As Jesus stands in this garden, he is submitting to the will of his Father and he's preparing to be the sacrifice that will make atonement for all sin. So as he 
takes his disciples with him and he takes Peter, James, and John further into the garden with him. He tells them to sit here and watch and pray. And he goes a little farther and he begins to cry out to his father, God, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, let that be so. Yet not my will, but your will. And in that moment, Jesus is preparing himself to become the sacrifice that will make atonement for all sin. In Eden, God sacrificed an animal. And for years, that's how people were instructed to make an offer for their sin. All throughout the Old Testament, you would see God's people making atonement for sin by sacrificially offering the blood spilled of a sacrificial animal unto God. That's how they would make an atonement for their sin. But it was never, it was never fully sufficient for covering the sins of the people. It was all a foreshadowing of something greater that was to come, of a better sacrifice that was to show up. See, the sins of the world, the sins of all people, past, present, and future, needed a better sacrifice, and that better sacrifice was Christ himself. So in Hebrews chapter 9, this writer says this of Christ's sacrifice. He says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So God makes it apparent that without the shedding of blood, there's never going to be any full atonement for the sins of all people. And he goes on to say in verse 26 of chapter 9, For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, talking about Christ being sacrificed once and for all. But as it is, he has, a, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's exactly what Jesus came to do. If you skip down in chapter 10, the writer continues, says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. So this writer is reflecting on a time in Old Testament history where year after year the high priest would have to go in and sacrifice an animal to make atonement for the sins of the people. And beyond Christ, he says, this was never going to be satisfactory. This is something that had to be done continually. But Christ came as a better sacrifice. So now that's all done away with. And verse 2, he says, otherwise, they would have never ceased to be offered. Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any conscience of sins, he says, no, because people would continue. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And you skip down to verse 12 in chapter 10. It says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sacrificed. Christ becomes the sacrifice needed to make atonement for the sins of the world. God's sacrifice in Eden was just a foreshadow of how one day he himself would become the sacrifice for all sins. A perfect lamb without spot or blemish. The only one who could sufficiently make atonement for our sins. So Christ becomes the sacrifice. In Eden, as a measure of protection... God guards the tree. But just beyond Gethsemane, Christ hangs on the tree. In Eden, God sent an angel to guard the way to the tree of life. But we know just beyond Gethsemane, after they seize Jesus and they take him out, they lead him to the cross. Christ is going to hang on a tree. In Eden, Adam was cursed. 
But on the cross, Christ was cursed. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, Paul references how he became our sin upon the cross and then makes a reference to an Old Testament prophecy about how all who are hanged on a tree are cursed. So in Eden, Adam was cursed, but just beyond Gethsemane, Christ is going to become a literal curse as he hangs on the cross for the consequences of our sins and our actions. On a piece of wood, think about this, on a piece of wood taken from a tree that he created, Christ is going to be nailed to and killed on. Creation, killing the creator on his creation. That's wild. To think that God would allow something like this to take place. But watch this. It's one of the greatest turnarounds in history. In Eden, God guards the tree to prevent eternal life. But just beyond Gethsemane, Christ hangs on the tree to bring eternal life. One tree would have sealed condemnation. The other tree sealed everyone's salvation. At one tree, God prevented the way to life. At the other tree, God made a way to life. If Adam would have made it to the tree, a ruptured thing would have become a ruined thing. When Christ made it to the tree, a ruptured thing became a restored thing. That's good news. One last thing to show you. When we left Eden, man had been expelled from the garden. But once we leave Gethsemane, Jesus goes through with taking the wrath of God upon the cross for our sins, allowing himself to be killed. Man goes from getting expelled from the garden to being granted entrance into heaven. Now, because of the work of Christ on the cross, all who believe and all who bow and all who confess him as Lord will be saved and assured of an eternity spent with him in his presence, once again walking side by side with the God of the universe in heaven. In Eden, man lost paradise. But just beyond Gethsemane, Jesus gave us a way back to it. Once expelled from the garden, man can now have entrance into heaven. I don't know about you guys, but like, man, for those of us that have surrendered and given our lives to Christ, it ought to still give us butterflies inside of our stomach to think about the work that Christ did, to think about the depth of our depravity, to think about the seriousness of our sins, to think about the places that we had been, the things that we had been around, the things that we had participated in, and to know that in just one moment of bowing and confessing Christ as our Lord, recognizing our need for your Savior, asking Him to cleanse us from our sins, knowing that He did that, and He restored us, and that we're no longer that old person that we used to be, but a new creation, and I don't have to live in bondage to my sin any longer. I get to live in freedom in Christ, that my eternity is no longer in hell, separated from Him, but in heaven walking with him that's amazing and I wish the church would stay a little bit more excited about the reality of our salvation because maybe if we did we would see more people come to Christ because they would realize there's something really there that this really is real 
that people really can be changed and transformed by the power of God's Word and the truth of His message. This is the greatest tale that's ever been told. This is the end of the story, right? Like, like this, this is it. This is, it's all over with. If, if we go back from the beginning, if you took, I hope you took good notes over the past few weeks because it all ties together. So if we go back to the beginning, a tale that started so long ago in a place that God gave to man as a place of paradise, a place of blessing, a place of enjoyment, a place of communion, but it turned into one of tragedy. And for Jesus, that became later a place of pressing, a place of betrayal, a place of endearment, a place of corruption as a result of our sin that we allowed to enter in, now being birthed into sin because of what Adam and Eve had done, temptation to sin, desires to sin, they now become a reality for each and every one of us. All of us were born into that sinful, corrupt nature because of the choice that was made in the garden. All of us face temptations to do things that God's Word says we should not do. All of us have desires to do things that God's Word says we should not do or entertain. Our corrupt and our depraved hearts, they become known through the revealing of our actions. If you don't believe you're corrupt, if you don't believe you're depraved, just take a look in the mirror. Look at the things that go on in your life. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to be rude. I'm not trying to be ugly. I'm not trying to call you names. Or anything. I'm just trying to show you the reality that we're all broken. We're all messed up. We're all jacked up. We're all sin swallowed up. That's a part of who we were, but it doesn't have to be who you continue to be. And it all ran much deeper than anyone could have ever imagined. Much deeper than Adam and Eve could have ever imagined. Man was thrown out of position in his relation to God. He lost touch with his identity. We've been searching for it ever since. We don't know who we are or what we were created for. We were left to face the consequences of our actions with no way to make things fully right. But God went to work immediately on our behalf, determined in love to keep hope alive for the hopeless. And from Eden where he left his statement unfinished, he went to the cross and took one last sip from a sponge that they lifted up to him. He wet his lips and he said, it is finished. Now it's done. This tale started a long, long time ago. And at the beginning, man, it was, it was meant to be perfect. It, it was meant to result in man walking with God in perfect fellowship day in and day out, not having to worry about what sin was, not having to worry about impure thoughts or desires or actions, not having to worry about stress or anxiety or shame or nakedness or embarrassment or any of those things. And then man did the one thing that I told them not to do, and it all came crashing down around them. In my love, I had to put measures in place that would prevent them from making a bad thing even worse. I had to kick them out of the paradise that I desired for them to live in. I had to go for years and years and years of seeing the relationship be fractured with no way for them to repair it so that one day at the right moment, I could show up on the earth, I could go to the cross, I could give my life willingly for their sins, I could spill out my blood as the perfect atoning sacrifice for them so that once again, they could have the choice to walk hand in hand with me once more. They could have the opportunity to be restored from their brokenness. They could have the opportunity to know that I don't have to have sin reign and dominion over me. That I can have a new Lord. I can have a new authority in my life. That I can have purpose. I can have calling. I can have destiny. I can have an eternity assured in heaven. It is finished. In Eden, 
he couldn't even finish the statement because he says, I got to get the plan in action. At Calvary, the plan was completed. He said, it's done. Now it's finished. Now it really is on them. You still have the choice. In Eden, Adam and Eve had the choice to not eat from that tree and to choose to believe that what God had set before them and what he had told to them was all that they needed and was better than anything else they could ever have. Jesus went to the cross, laid down his life, spilled his blood, made us aware of the fact that we are all broken. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that apart from accepting him as our Lord and Savior, we will spend an eternity separated from him in a place called hell that is very, very real. But I'll go to the cross and I'll give my life and I'll shed my blood and I'll let them know that if you truly believe in who I am, that if you will accept the reality that you are indeed fallen and that you do indeed need a Savior, and if they will come to me and in their brokenness confess I messed up and I need you, I will enter into their lives. I will save their souls. I will give them forgiveness. I will wipe them clean. I will restore them. I will renew them. I will redeem them. But the choice is still yours today. Still yours. Each and every one of us make our own personal choice in faith whether we will accept or reject what Christ has done for us. So what's your choice? Have you chosen? Are you waiting to choose? I don't know how much time is going to be left for that choice to still be available.